You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Email election threats to U.S. voters are identified as an Iranian influence operation, disruptive, and so more in the Russian style. Both Iran and Russia appear to be preparing direct marketing influence campaigns. Cyber criminals are also exploiting U.S. election news as fish bait. Seedworm is said to be retooling. Caleb Barlow from Synergistech on contact tracing and privacy as students head back to school. Our guest is J.D. Hansen from Code42 on juggling priorities and protecting her organization as external and internal threats constantly take aim. And TASS deplores the blatant Russophobia of recent Five Eyes official remarks. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Elliot Peltzman, sitting in for Dave Bittner, with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. The U.S. Director of National Intelligence yesterday said that the threatening emails received by voters in several states were the work of Iranian threat actors. See the AP for a general account. Both Know Before and Proofpoint have published discussions of the emails. The text looked much like that found in sextortion phishing, except that in this case, the threat conveyed was that the attackers knew who the voters were, where they lived, and would visit them with violence if they did not vote for President Trump's re-election. We asked Know Before when they sent us their analysis if this didn't amount to phishing without fish hooks. No before's response, quote, as for CyberWire's question, they're correct. At first glance, this does appear to be a phishing email, as it resembles classic sextortion emails that are now very common. That said, there are no malicious links or attachments and no demands for money. The email mainly demands votes and changes of voter registration, end quote. The senders claimed to represent the Proud Boys, a white supremacist fringe group, but that claim was quickly disavowed and debunked. The threat the emails conveyed is also no more credible than the threats conveyed by their sextortion models. The intent appears to have been disruptive. Whatever Tehran takes its interest to be, as Defense One notes, the re-election of President Trump is unlikely in the extreme to figure among them. Proofpoint said, in response to a question we sent them, that they had no direct insight into the party affiliations of the people who received the emails. The emails themselves accused the recipients of being known Democrats, but that of course doesn't mean that they were or are. And various news outlets have said that people registered as Republicans or Independents 
or libertarians or Bread and Roses members or prohibitionists or whatever may well also have received the emails. Republicans and independents, anyways, were just speculating about the others. All this suggests poor aim in what amounts, in terms of tactics, techniques, and procedures, to a direct marketing campaign. The Washington Post quotes the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Clint Watts, whose Twitter feed has an instructive discussion of why, on grounds of sheer argument to best explanation, the operation looks like one of Iran's. It's ill-timed, for one thing, and runs against the interests of the Trump campaign, whatever the text of the email might say. President Trump is, as we noted above, not exactly flavor of the month in Tehran. Above all, it's sloppy. We can see that. Marketing campaigns for, say, vacation timeshares or jazzercise franchising opportunities would be better directed, to say nothing of the rifle-shot accuracy of association, Chrome or Amazon serve-up piping hot. The Wall Street Journal reports that the Director of National Intelligence also said that not only Iran, but Russia too, had obtained voter registration data. Such data are in most U.S. jurisdictions matters of public record, freely available, and authorities expect to see more use of such information in the final weeks before the election. So, of course, the claim in the emails that the attackers had penetrated election systems is hooey. No before added, in their reply to our questions, quote, Moreover, it's worth pointing out that the entire threat in this email turns on the claim to have penetrated election systems, giving whoever is behind these emails the ability to monitor users' election behavior. That's just not a credible claim, as it is simply not believable that a group that had managed to penetrate election systems would be advertising the fact in such a public manner for several weeks before the election. We would expect any group that penetrated those systems to be sophisticated enough to hold their tongues and bide their time, waiting for the opportunity to do real damage come election day. End quote. The Washington Post characterizes the threat as long expected, quote, targeting voter confidence rather than ballots and run on the cheap, probably with publicly available data. End quote. As we said, direct marketing, but selling fear and mistrust as opposed to sports memorabilia or garden duels or, well, you get the picture. Not every election-related activity is espionage, however. There's plenty of opportunity to go around. Reuters reports that Facebook, in its latest discussion of the inauthenticity it continues to whack, says that criminals in many countries, from Albania to Vietnam, Reuters says alphabetically, since apparently Zimbabwe is cybercrime-free, are taking opportunistic advantage of the U.S. elections to stage various criminal campaigns. Many of these will involve phishing, so be on your guard. And not every Iranian cyber espionage effort is devoted to impersonating the Proud Boys, either. Symantec has an update on the activities of Muddy Water, the Iranian threat group also known as Seedworm, the researchers say that Seedworm is retooling and has brought the Paugoop tool into its arsenal. Seedworm's targets are regional rivals, Iraq, Turkey, Kuwait, UAE, and Georgia. TASS is authorized to disclose that accusations of misconduct in cyberspace leveled against the Russian government in general, and the GRU in particular, are not only baseless, but amount to blatant Russophobia. 
They're talking about the U.S. indictment of the six GRU officers and the British denunciation of that same GRU for a wide range of offenses, ranging from hacking Olympic Games to murdering people with nerve agent. But TASS says it's all a bum rap and regrettable and people shouldn't make such accusations and so on. Says TASS, all you Russophobes, you. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. In a year full of surprises, there's a lot on the minds of CISOs. Let's hear now from Code42's CISO, J.D. Hansen. She sat down with Dave recently to talk about juggling priorities and protecting her organization as external and internal threats constantly take aim. I think it's really important to remember that our mandate as security professionals hasn't changed. Our job is to protect the company and whatever circumstances we're in. Um, And I also think it's really important that we remember to stick to the strategies and the plans um, and the maturity programs that we have in place. You know, the, the one thing that we do have to account for is a shifting landscape. And so, you know, we, we need to stick to our strategies, but at the same sense, like we need to bring in kind of shifting landscapes. So maybe that's a different type of attack vector one quarter, and maybe that's everybody's working from home another quarter. I think as we look to 2021, 
Um, one of the things that we're going to continue to be challenged with is just how do we make sure to stick to our strategy in this new work from anywhere methodology. Um, I don't anticipate that changing anytime soon. And so what, for me, one of the things I think about is just um, how, how do I maintain the right level of visibility to everybody that is sitting in their home office? Um, to, you know, in the in the old world, we relied on networks and people in the office. Um, now our networks span to everybody's homes. And we need to make sure that in 2021, we're really thinking through how do we enable that? How do we have the right tech in place and the right visibility in place to enable that. Um, and so I think some of the shift in 21 is going to be where we rethink the endpoint. We get away from anything network and we think about how do we have the right visibility on the endpoint um, to continue to, to secure the companies that we work for. Based on on your experience, uh, looking forward, um, you know, I'm thinking of advice to other CISOs out there as they're trying to to make their plans for the coming months and for into 2021. Um, any advice? Any any tips or guidance for for best practices and what people should be aiming their sights on? Yeah, a couple things. Um, one, I'm kind of going back to what I said earlier. I really think that this shift away from the network is something that we have to embrace. Um, we got to think about what is the technology that we need on the endpoint to have the right visibility and the right security controls. Um, so that that would be one. The, the other thing that I would recommend too is to really think about like how we need to collaborate in um, this work from home world and how the security team can really support that. Um, yes, we need to protect their data. Yes, we need to make sure that we're not, no one's exfiltrating data, but at the same sense, like we have to support the collaboration that needs to happen. And, you know, it, now more than ever, we need technology that allows collaboration from team to team. Um, and so thinking through in 2021, how do you do that? How do you do that in a safe way? And then, and then finally, just really that focus on employees. So as you think about 2021, like what do our employees need? What's the culture that you need to drive as part of the organization? It can't be the same as, you know, this, the safety that everybody felt um, in the office prior to pandemic. We need to think about this differently. That's J.D. Hansen from Code42. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Caleb Barlow. He is the CEO at Synergistech. Uh, Caleb, it's always great to have you back. You know, I wanted to touch base with you as uh, kids are considering going back to universities. Uh, some places are going back to schools. And we're also talking about contact tracing apps and all that sort of stuff. I mean, this is a lot of information that's being shared. And there are some privacy implications here. And I know that's something that you've been thinking about. Well, the first thing to recognize in this, Dave, is that there's a little bit of a public health cyber war game going on here in that the winners and losers and the pace of recovery for the U.S. as well as across the globe will in a lot of ways be determined based on who has 
access to data, access to vaccines, access to information on treatments. So there's a lot of froth, let's say, in the nation state world to get access to this type of data. But now if we also look at, well, what are people gathering in contact tracing? And, you know, I recently looked at you know, there's surveillance uh, program that some of these universities are putting in place. And they even, interestingly enough, use the word surveillance testing. They're doing things like wastewater testing because that's one of the early ways you can identify COVID. Uh, Students have to agree to random tests at any point in time. They're going to have to, you know, kind of get marched off and go get a COVID test. Um, Mm. In a lot of cases, they're checking in to their dorm room, to the cafeteria, uh, to various classrooms, scanning a QR code. And of course, every security professional hears the word QR code and starts to cringe because we all know (laughs) you can embed, you know, applications in a QR code, right? But Mm. here's where it gets even more interesting is some of these schools are even saying, hey, look, you know, we've, we've got this wireless network we're going to track where you move based on the Wi-Fi hotspots. And we're going to maybe even put a, a application on your phone. But don't worry, we're all going to put it in a FERPA database and it'll all be safe. And look, this isn't just universities. This is also employers. In some cases, employers are using, you know, ultra-wideband employee badges to track where you are in a facility and who you get near. But here's the big thing that this has that we've never had before in kind of our private data stream. Like we've all lost our healthcare data at this point. We've all lost a whole lot of personal information and location data and all that stuff, you know, either from being stolen or from advertisers using it. But the one big thing that we've never really had to tackle with before is who are we associated with? And all of that is now in this data. And that's not just who I went to class with, That's who I'm dating. That's who I'm married to. That's maybe who I'm having an affair with, right? Mm -hmm. All of that is now in this contact tracing data. Hmm. Well, so where's the balance there? I mean, if these efforts are are being conducted in good faith for good reason in in the middle of a a global pandemic, uh, how do we strike that balance? Well, I, I think that's actually easy. There's no question we need to do this, right? I think any healthcare professionals going to look at this and say, yes, this is something we really do need to do. But there's two things we need to do with it. One, when do we stop doing it? And we need to think about that before we start doing it, right? When is the point where we back away from collecting this data? What, are the, what do we do with the data when we're done with it, after the crisis is passed? And I think the third thing we've got to think about is, As fast as we're rallying to get kids back to school, to get people back to work, every security professional needs to be standing up and saying, okay, this is a new risk, a new vulnerability, not on my watch. How am I going to rally just as fast to lock this data down and control it so it can't be stolen and inadvertently used? And look, if we all respond to that rallying cry, then we're going to get through this together. The mistake will be if the security teams don't go in right behind them and lock this data down. Hmm. All right. Caleb Barlow, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. 
And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe and also our bedrooms, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Dave Bittner, and I'm Elliot Peltzman. Thanks for listening. Thank you.